I want to draw your attention to a new book that's just been released. It's called The Great Dechurching. Uh, what it does, it, it tries to explain the decline of Christianity in the Western world. Now, uh, when I was sort of looking into it, it hadn't been in full release, I couldn't get a copy of it, but, but one review in The Atlantic stated the thesis of the book in this way. It said, it's about how today's world simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care and common life. Rather, it's designed to maximise individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. All right, so what this book is arguing is that our modern-day preoccupation with success is slowly pulling people away from the church. Now, as I say that, I wonder if that resonates with you. Um, is that what you think is, is happening at the moment? Um, and I, I wonder, do you think following Jesus is becoming harder in today's world? What, what do you think about that? Uh, today and, and over next week as well, we're, we're going to explore uh, part of what's driving this change in our world's thinking, but more importantly, we're going to explore how a robust doctrine of creation is actually the antidote that we need. All right, well, let's get stuck in. We'll do a bit of a, a deep dive on an approach to human identity that is sort of driving this change in our world. It's known as expressive individualism, and whether or not we've come across the label or not, we've all seen it. Uh, it's what lies behind the slogan, you know, you be you. And actually, to that slogan, we could add, in, add many more just like it. Um, find your true self. Follow your heart. These are the, the rallying cries of expressive individualism. And so what is it? Well, it's this, this question of who defines you. And you think about, well, what does that mean? Well, consider one alternative to sort of think about who you are. You could say, well, your society defines you, defines who you are, defines how you live. And so under sort of that system, then your goal in life is to conform as best as you're able to your society. Okay, so that's, that's one possible option for sort of getting to the heart of who you are. Well, expressive individualism says that actually we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't let society dictate and define who we are. Um, and there's various reasons for that, but, but some of the reasons seem simply because we're different. We're unique individuals. And so because we're unique, we need to learn how to define ourselves and, and therefore express ourselves. So how they, they talk about doing this is by looking inside, looking at your heart, working out who you are, and then once you've worked out who you are, your big goal in life is to then live that identity, to live the authentic life. And the claim is that once we do that, once we live the authentic life, then we will actually be fulfilled, we'll be happy, we'll be content. That's expressive individualism. Now, whether we realise it or not, let me suggest this is the air that we breathe in our world today. Uh, let me share some examples. Um, I'll start with films. Uh, many push this philosophy. 
Uh, very simple films do this, films like How to Train Your Dragon. Um, it pretty much follows the expressive individualism script to the letter. So how does that work? Well, you've got Hiccup, um, and Hiccup is unique. Now, if you haven't seen the film, Hiccup's the main character. And what Hiccup does, he befriends a dragon. But actually, as he does that, he, he violates the expectations of his society. So people are looking around and say, well, you can't do that. We don't do that. That's not what you do. You don't befriend dragons. Well, I, I'm going to give the film away, right? What ends up happening is he befriends the dragon, they become good friends, and actually the community then rallies around him, and, and by the end, all of them are training dragons, and everyone's happy. This is the individual expression, um, expressive individualist story. Um, it's everywhere in film. Um, you might think of Frozen. Um, what's going on there? Well, Elsa, she's not happy. She's in a community of oppressive norms. And so what does she do? Does she conform? Does she sort of shape herself to what the world wants her to become? Well, no, she doesn't. She breaks free. She becomes her true self, this magical queen. And of course, um, you know, if you've got an office overlooking the preschool here, you'll have heard this song to death. Uh, what does she sing? It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Uh, it's actually everywhere in film. It's, it's Disney films. This is, this is what comes through. Every film. Uh, where else do we see it? Well, you know, we see it in those bits of advice that pop up in your social media feeds, the tips about how to live a happy life. Uh, almost without exception, this one piece of advice pops up and it says this. It says, ditch anyone who drains you. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, the Marie Kondo philosophy of community. Just get rid of anyone who doesn't bring you joy. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? And it is. Expressive individualism is really all about you. All about how you can become the best version of yourself. And so if there is anyone or anything that gets in the way of that, then you get rid of it. Chuck it out. It's a really ruthless way of living. And of course, in one sense, there's nothing new here, right? I'll argue a bit later on that actually, in the Bible, identifies and actually speaks against a very early form of expressive individualism in its opening pages. But if we zoom in on the specific form that we're seeing today, um, where does this come from? Well, there are, there are tombs that, sort of, that work through this. But the experts, they trace it back to the 18th century, they go to the Romantic philosophers. And then the, the, sort of the next major milestone, they, they jump through to the 1960s. Um, that's where they, they sort of speak about this movement becoming kind of mainstream. But then they actually really look at the last decade or so, where they say, well, actually, it, it's right now, actually, that this approach to human identity has really become dominant in the Western world. And the result of that is that we're really only now starting to see some of the more incredible examples and really some of the, the really bad outcomes from this. Um, I, I was thinking about it, and I think that the number one example that I can think of, of um, the, this expressive individualist project in action, is actually Facebook's vision for the metaverse. Um, a little context first, right? Um, Facebook, we know it, it's a, it's a massive organisation, isn't it? Huge 
Corporation. And so when Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook would be changing its name to Meta, that was a big deal, wasn't it? People were wondering, why, why would you do that? Well, it's because of the Metaverse. They believe that it will be the next version of the internet, which is to say that they think it will be huge. And so what is it? Well, the metaverse is really, I think, the end point of expressive individualism. Because it will allow a user to create a more authentic version of themselves. Okay, so even more authentic than in real life. That's the claim. Um, just have a listen to, to what, they, what they say about the metaverse. This embodied identity... So this online identity that you shape and you form and so on and so forth. It's necessary to achieve the feeling of presence that the metaverse can provide. It will allow us to recognise and interact with each other and even do things with each other that we couldn't do in physical space. Just as the metaverse will open up experiences that might not be possible in the physical world, it will also allow you to share and express your identity in ways that you might not be able to in real life. Uh, the goal here is this, this is a new work of creation, actually. <clears throat> a new world where you can construct your own identity and in so doing better express who you are on the inside. Um, last time I checked, creating this new world has cost Meta $36 billion. So they're pretty convinced it's the future. Now, with all the buzz surrounding expressive individualism, um, it should be noted, and this is a bit of a downer actually, it doesn't actually work. I say that because a key claim of this movement is this, this whole idea that if you live this way, you live the authentic life, live what's on the inside, define who you are, and live that out, the claim is that actually you will be happier, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be content. Well, let me suggest that actually the evidence is not pointing that way at all. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Uh, I don't think I need to go and do this too much, but let me show what I mean. One, one example is simply the impact of social media. Um, overall, the experts all say it's had a, actually a really negative impact on our well-being. Uh, why so? Well, I think it does illustrate one of the problems with trying to define your own identity. That's kind of the, the key problem here, defining your own identity. On Facebook, where do you start? Well, you, you choose your own profile pic, don't you? Um, that hits one of the aims of expressive individualism. You have this agency over your own identity, in that you really do get to choose how others view you. And yet that hasn't produced great results. The fact that hundreds, thousands, I don't know how many friends you might have on these platforms, but the fact that they can see how that you've chosen to present yourself to the world, that can then leave you wondering, well, what do people think about my choice? And for many, it leaves them wanting validation. It leaves them seeking approval for the identity that they've chosen. Because who else is there to affirm our choices? And so while social media enables self-definition, in reality, it magnifies the influence of others on how you think about yourself. 
And in the end, the, the posting of selfies can become a, a simple quest for likes, an attempt to boost our flagging self-esteem. And for some, any post that doesn't immediately receive positive feedback just gets quietly removed. And so does this work? Well, social media is one example. But actually, there's a huge amount of evidence that suggests that, as a society, defining ourselves is really problematic. Experts are now referring to those who grew up in the 21st century as the fragile generation. Looking inside ourselves to see who we are, the statistics are selling us, actually, this is a, a really fragile foundation on which to construct our identity. In a really troubling statistic here in Australia, the, the National Youth Mental Health Foundation, um, they recently found on university campuses, TAFE campuses, so those who have grown up with this philosophy, that now 70% of students reported high to very high levels of psychological issues. And so again, it's really not clear that expressive individualism actually works. Which brings us to the doctrine of creation. And to what I'm going to suggest is the only solid foundation upon which we can discover our true identity. It's a big claim, isn't it? Just sit in that for a moment, that, that's actually a really big claim. It's saying that actually the doctrine of creation is an antidote to the woes of our current society. Well, let's see if we can make this case. I want to begin with a very simple but profound truth, that we were made by God. Uh, just that truth will have a huge impact on how we view ourselves. Because what it means is that, well, actually, we're not God. We didn't make ourselves, and the, the world actually doesn't revolve around us. That sounds like a really obvious point to make, doesn't it? But actually, when you think about it, with respect to expressive individualism, it's actually not that obvious. Because where does expressive individualism lead? Well, it leads you to think that actually this world is for you. Here's a statistic for you. In the 1950s, a personality test asked teenagers whether they thought of themselves as an important person. So back in the 1950s, 12% said yes. By the late 1980s, it was up to 80%. I'm pretty confident today it would be even higher. Why is that? Well, it's because now, from a very early age, we're told that all of us, we will achieve great things. That all of us, we will be truly exceptional. And so it's no surprise that we're now seeing a huge rise in narcissism. Um, so, for example, back in uh, 2013, the American National Institutes of Health found that the incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as it was for the generation who are now 65 or older. But actually, that's what happens when each of us are told that we are exceptional. We start to believe it. Well, the doctrine of creation reveals that, that actually we're not God, that the world, it doesn't revolve around us and actually the default human position should be that of humility. 
But why did God make us? What is our purpose in life? What are we to do? Well, from chapter 1, verse 26, we have what is a huge declaration in the context of the opening of the Bible. God said, let us make mankind in our image. Now, why do I say it's a huge declaration? Well, that's flagged for us because it comes right at the end of the six days of creation. And so, in that way, it acts as the the high point, I think, of God's creative work. So, this is a huge declaration. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, on one hand, an image bearer in some way resembles the original. And so, the question then becomes, well, how do humans resemble God? And we're given the answer, I think, in verse 26. As those who bear God's image, we will rule over this world. And so, fundamentally, to be in the image of God, it's actually a declaration. And this is, this is so important. And God is saying that humans, we are God's representatives in this world. And so, regardless of our individual intelligence, regardless of the, the level of education attained, regardless of our health, regardless of our income, regardless of the job that we do, every human being was made in the image of God. And so all of us have value, from the newborn baby to the centenarian. We all have value. Now, why is that important? Well, again, you you compare this to expressive individualism. How might the expressive individualist view others, especially the weak and the lowly? Well, as one writer has put it, if our day is ruled by a culture of self-interest and the pursuit of pleasure, built into a narrative of following your heart and achieving greatness, well, what room is there for the weak and lowly, those in need of kindness, generosity and compassion? For what reasons might such people not be regarded simply as obstacles on your path to fulfilling your potential? So again, this is a key truth. We've been made in the image of God and so we have value. But just as importantly, and this is such a key point for our world, we have value but so does everyone else. Okay, so we're made to rule over this. What does that actually look like? Let's have a listen from verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number... Fill the earth and subdue it. I would love to fill this out more, actually, but what's critical here is that when God made the world, He didn't produce a a finished product. There was still work to be done, and and humans are to be involved in that work. We are to work towards a world that is both full and orderly. And so we were made to, to work, made to serve others, which is really what work is. Again, just ponder this for a moment. And maybe you are on holidays right now and and just ponder what work is. I think first and foremost, it's a way of serving others. Now, we might normally expect to be paid for that service. But actually, expressive individualism doesn't agree with this. Um, They'll say that work is not about serving others, it's actually about you. It's about authentically expressing who you are. So, um, you think, well, what does that mean for the work that you do under that system? Well, you do you, do you right? 
you might spend your days doing only what you love to do, regardless of whether it provides any benefit for anyone else. It's a very different way of viewing how we spend our time, how we view work. One's about serving others, the other's about serving ourselves. But actually, the doctrine of creation all presents a very different view of rest as well. We were made to rest. Just as God rested on the seventh day, according to the Ten Commandments as given in Exodus, uh, that was actually a pattern for God's people to live by. You work six days, rest on the seventh. At this point, we start wondering, well, what is rest? Uh, It's not like God got to the end of His six days of work and was just so thoroughly exhausted that He had to rest. It's not like it was sort of a sick day for Him. That's not what rest is in the Bible. Rest is enjoying the good things that God has given us. So it's not necessarily doing nothing. Rest can be active, it can be rock climbing, it can be gaming. But actually, again, this just clashes with expressive individualism. Because for many, they set lofty goals. They've been led to believe that they are exceptional. And so what does that mean? Well, actually, they feel this weight of expectation to become partner in 10 years, uh, to build a, a unicorn startup to become world champion. And there's this tremendous weight of expectation, and so it can be very difficult to rest. Hard not just to keep working and working and working a slave to these unattainable goals. Well, actually, the, the doctrine of creation says no to the workaholics amongst us. We were made for work, but we were also made to rest. But more than that, regular rest. See, for many of us, the only time we actually get a break from our work is during those four weeks of annual leave. Again, maybe you're on that now. A time to wind down, a time to reset, perhaps, this might be how we think of it. And we need that because by the time we get to those four weeks, we've been working so hard that we're wrecked. And so really, we're using these weeks to try and get back to a healthy state. Well, actually, that's not right. We weren't made to rest once a year. We're actually made to rest once a week. And so what's the doctrine of creation teaching us? Well, what it's saying is that God knew what He was doing. This world, it was made for us. Which is so that it was made to be a perfect fit for us. Um, that's why throughout the, the creation accounts... We have this repeated truth that the world that God made was good. You think, well, well, why was it good? What does that mean? Well, it was good because it was a perfect fit for us. That's why it was good. Let me show you this. Notice how in chapter 1 we've got these seven scenes and they follow the same four-stage pattern. First, we've got a creative command such as, let there be light, followed by the result of that command such as, and there was light which is then followed by more detail about what had actually happened, such as he separated the light from the darkness, before finally concluding with the formula, and there was evening and there was morning, on whichever day that we're up to. Now, within this four-stage pattern, 
we've got the repeated statement that it was good. Yet exactly where that phrase occurs in this four-stage pattern does change. So in day one, it's stated just once, right after the creation of light. In day two, it's left out completely. In day three, it's stated twice. And so you, you do wonder about that. What's going on in this very orderly, crafted, structured account? Why is, is where it is good sort of popping up in different places, in different frequencies? Well, again, a closer look reveals that God only describes something as good when what has been produced is useful for humans. And so the heavens, water and earth were only declared to be good once the land had appeared, because at that point humans could live on it. And notice also that humans themselves are described as being very good, all of which is to say that when God made this world, it was perfect, because it was perfect for us. It was a world that would allow humans to flourish. Now, of course, the world back then is not the world that we have today. Uh, with the entry of sin into the world and God's judgment on that sin, uh, this world is no longer the utterly good world that it was in the beginning. And so there is some validity, isn't there, in the expressive individualist project to, to sort of create a new world to overcome some of the issues with this world. But of course, God Himself has promised to do that with the return of the Lord Jesus. But actually, that new world that the Lord Jesus brings, it it won't be some other type of world. It's not going to be a virtual world. Nothing like that. It'll be a physical world because the world that God made in the beginning was a perfect fit for us. And so that's the type of world that we're looking forward to when He returns. Now, unless you think I want to bag out all movies and, and so on these days, let me, let me throw up for you a fairly positive example of a movie. I think the the film Gravity did us a great service to help us appreciate just what a, a perfect fit this world is for us as humans. Um, it's a little while ago now, that film. It was a big film. Um, George Clooney, Sandra Bullock. Um, I don't remember who else, but they were the big names popping in there. The message that this film promoted, it wasn't subtle, right? It really wasn't. It was flashed up right at the start of the movie. It said, life in space is impossible. Okay, so that's the very start of the film. That's really what the key message was about. It was about Earth is our home and life in space is impossible. And look, it, as you sort of realise, that's actually the theme of the film. When you look at the film, you can see this point being made in, in numerous ways. Uh, one example was simply that those who, remain, who chose to remain in space, they all died. So life in space is impossible. You stayed up there, they all died. Whereas the main character, she returned to Earth and actually her return was presented in a really symbolic way. In space, we, we see her in the fetal position as a sort of like a baby in a, in a womb before symbolically she was reborn when she returned to Earth. And in that scene, she's crawling through a tight space, she's bursting out of a chute into water before finally making it onto land and back home. This, this rebirth scene saying, this is where she truly belongs. That's a profoundly biblical idea. This world is our home. It's where we belong because God made it for us. So the way that God made us, this doctrine of creation, I hope it's bringing through this idea that actually this is a, a beautiful understanding of who we are. 
And actually it is an antidote to the expressive individualist project. We don't look inside to define who we are, we actually look to the God who made us to reveal who we are and how we're to live. But I do have one final point to make, and maybe this is the most important. God made us to be known. Social researcher Hugh Mackay has argued that of the ten desires that drive human beings, according to him, the number one desire is to be taken seriously. So that means being noticed, being appreciated, being valued. And it's so important because it's linked to love. Being known intimately and personally is a big part of of being loved. Well, on the other hand, when others don't know us, when nobody knows us, we we actually feel lost. I pondered this for a moment as I recount some words of Josh Vincent. He's a 38-year-old father of three, and he lost his wife to cancer. And, And listen closely to the words that he uses to describe his experience. Uh, What is it like to lose your wife? A number of words come to mind. One is invisible. After 14 years with Carrie, I felt like she saw me, all of me, and loved me anyway. There's no replacing 14 years of being seen by someone every day and night. Uh, We weren't made to live in isolation. We are made for community. And yet the end result of expressive individualism is often a very disconnected life. Uh, today we're increasing seeing headlines, such as the one I saw recently in The Australian. Um, this was the headline, one in three Australian adults report being lonely. Now that's a really sad statistic, but it, it really makes sense, I think, of where we're at in our world today. When your life becomes all about your goals... Uh, when your life becomes all about achieving your dreams, when others are mere tools to help you achieve that, well, relationships are not valued. Community life disintegrates and actually we're really not known by anyone. It's bleak, but we're seeing more and more of it. Um, Let me give you some examples of this. The Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murphy, stated that Um, there is an epidemic of loneliness and isolation that threatens America. He notes from 2003 to 2020, the average time that young people spent in person with friends declined by nearly 70%. That's staggering, isn't it? The UK, they've appointed a minister for loneliness. Well, it's really just telling us what the doctrine of creation tells us, and that is that we were made for community. We were made to be known, made to relate to others. And just to be clear, when the Bible talks about knowing others, it's not usually talking about factual knowledge, it's relational. So it's not so much what we are, but it's about who we are. Made to be known, known by God, known by others. Um, Even in the readings, Adam and Eve could could speak face-to-face with God. You saw it there in the garden, humanity could be with God, known by God. This is a beautiful image, but also notice the connection there between Adam and Eve. They were made for each other, they were a perfect fit, that's how God made us, to relate, to know. 
But we also notice what damaged those beautiful and harmonious relationships. We broke ourselves, we broke our world, and actually it was an early form of expressive individualism that did this. Because while God in Genesis 2.17 told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree for their own protection, what did the serpent do? It followed the expressive individualist script. It said, reject external authorities, you're not going to die. It said, your lives will actually get better if you follow your own hearts, you know, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God. But of course, life didn't get better, God's judgment fell and our relationships, all of them were damaged. That's why we struggle with community today, don't we? We now live in a different world, such that even now, if we listen to our Creator and live His way, and even if we acknowledge that we were made for God, well, actually, life doesn't suddenly just become perfection. Because deep within all of our hearts is that same expressive individualist desire to just do our own thing. Because all of us, at times, we think we're wiser than God, don't we? We think that we know the best way to live. We know what will work for us. But actually, it doesn't work. And actually, who better to tell us how to live than the one who made us and the one who truly knows us? And so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with Jesus, actually. Because He knows us. He knows who we are. He knows what we're like, each of us. We're all unique and He knows what we're like and He knows that we struggle. He knows that and He can relate to that because He too was tempted. And so He knows us deeply, from back to front. He knows us even better than we know ourselves. Which is really to say that we are more sinful than we could ever know. But at the same time, the Bible is just as clear. We are also more loved than we could ever imagine. Isn't that an incredible truth? The Lord Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet He still loves us more than we could ever imagine. And so when it comes to knowing who we are, we have the most solid foundation that we could ever ask for. To be completely known and unconditionally loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you made us, made in your image, made to work, made to rest, made for this world, made to be known, made to be loved. Father, enable us to embrace the identity that you have given us as your children as we cling to the cross for forgiveness and a restored relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.